Hello, and welcome to KPMG's Talking Tertiary podcast, where we reimagine tertiary education for a changing world. I'm Stephen Parker, KPMG's education sector leader in Australia. And in this episode, I look back at the whole of the first season of Talking Tertiary, reviewing what some of my guests have said, trying to pick out some of the themes and looking ahead to season two. In this first season, we had 14 substantive episodes, 13 of them were one-to-one interviews, and another comprised extracts from a lunch in Perth, where five vice-chancellors spoke to an invited audience. And across the 14 episodes, I talked with 12 vice-chancellors, I talked with the heads of the two regulatory bodies, I talked with a representative from the private sector, the chief executive officer of Laureate. I talked with leading figures in the vocational sector. And I spoke to someone with a strong international dimension, Stephanie Fay, the head of Austrade. We heard the voice of industry in the form of Jenny Lambert from the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. And we heard the youth voice, Jan Owen from the Foundation for Young Australians. And I think the aim of the first season of these Talking Tertiary podcasts was to speak to some leaders and generally bring together diverse perspectives. Looking back, only indirectly did we capture the student voice, and that's something I'll need to think about for the future. We didn't really pick up the academics and teachers' perspectives, nor their trade union representation, but it's also something I should bear in mind. And I'm not sure I really got to grips with inequity and inequality and whether tertiary education is really effective in reducing them, about which there are some interesting views emerging globally. But nevertheless, it was, I think, a successful experiment as a first season which ticked many of the boxes. The download figures have been good and they're continuing and the social media reaction has been positive. In this wrap-up episode, I'm going to pick out some themes from the various episodes, so you'll hear extracts from many of those voices again, and then I'll say something about the direction of season two when it's time to ginger things up a bit. If continuity and change was the meta-theme of the series, and I'm going to end this episode on the very topic of whether disruptive change is just round the corner, there were several specific themes that our speakers emphasised. One was the topic of the binary divide between higher education and vocational education in Australia, with their separate regulatory funding and government systems and their generally different cultures. Now, maybe I was dwelling on this because KPMG in 2018 issued a major report calling for an end to the binary system and a move to an ecosystem of high-quality providers aiming to be the best of their type. First, we heard our regulators. Anthony McLaren, Chief Executive of TEXA, the Tertiary Education Quality and Standards Agency, handled with diplomacy my naughty question whether they ever talk to ASQA, which, dear listener, regulates most, but not all, of vocational education where there are actually more tertiary students than in higher education, but it doesn't have the word tertiary in its title. 
I can't resist this, Anthony. If regulators are talking to regulators, are you talking to ASQA, which is the regulator that regulates the vocational sector here in Australia? Absolutely. Uh, One of the first priorities I had when I arrived here in 2015 was to really strengthen and deepen that relationship with ASQA. And I know that ASQA's leadership have felt, you know, exactly the same way. Half of the providers that Texa regulates are dual sector providers. So there's a very significant overlap in terms of those entities. So ASQA and Texa have moved towards, for instance, having a shared risk register. So we wouldn't now go into any decision about a provider without also being aware, Mm -hmm. if they're dual sector, what our colleagues at ASQA think about that particular provider. The then Chief Executive of ASQA, which stands for the Australian Skills Quality Authority, was equally diplomatic and then went on to underscore how different the two parts of the sector are. This is Mark Patterson. Yes, there are two regulatory authorities and there is a degree of overlap. There's a high level of collaboration Mm. and cooperation between us. But there are some very real differences between Mm. the sector. The vocational education and training sector that's developed over the last two decades is competency-based, with the standards being developed and identified by industry and the assessment, therefore, being competency-based in relation to the training. The higher education sector is largely self-accrediting, has some interaction with industry, but you would not say that the higher education sector is by any means industry-led. And I think that the two regulatory regimes reflect the differences between the sector in terms of What need is it meeting? And you need fit-for-purpose regulation. We should have the least impactful regulation that is required to meet the standards that are expected by the community. I, for one, am not one that thinks that there's any urgency in relation to trying to bring the two regulatory authorities together. I think whilst the sectors remain as starkly different Mm -hmm. in their nature and in the mode of delivery and assessment, I think that there will be an ongoing need for two regulatory bodies to make the proper assessment to meet the needs of the sector that they're regulating. The view from industry was that we need to get our act together on all of this. Jenny Lambert, Director of Employment, Education and Training at Aki, referred to KPMG's report in this respect. There's no doubt that Australia will be better served by a national approach to policy and funding in the tertiary system. And obviously in higher ed, that's more easily obtained because higher ed is funded solely by the Commonwealth Government. But the number one step, and you certainly recommended it as recommendation one in your report as well, is we have to get the premiers and the first ministers to actually recognise that it has to be fixed. And I think that's not about starting from this is the way down to the machinery of how you fix it, but they actually have to recognise that we're not well served by the current system. An undertow in some of the discussions was the issue of quality in vocational education. No one denied that it's come through turbulent times in contrast to the relative stability of higher education. This is Mark Patterson's take on it all. Well, I think that when people talk of the recent past, they talk most frequently of a program called Vet Fee Help, which was a poorly designed loans program, which a number of people took advantage of, to say the very least. And very large numbers of people who were not well qualified to be able to undertake programs in vocational education and training were signed up and ended up with income contingent loans and no qualifications. That clearly had a negative impact on the reputation of the vocational education and training sector. 
It was a very small component. As I said, we regulate pretty close to 4,000 registered training organisations. There were only 186 186 registered training organisations who were authorised under the Vet Fee Help Program, a program that we did not administer. Is that right? And of that, maybe 30, 35 were highly problematic providers. So it needs to be kept in proportion. It's real. It was a very large amount of public funding. And I think that there is still developments to occur for the Commonwealth to be able to realise the extent to which those income contingent loans may get repaid or not. But it has had a profound effect on the reputation of the vet sector, which I think by any measure is not perfect, but is world class. Public providers of vocational education, the TAFE institutes, have become the minority over the course of the last decade in terms of number of institutions and student enrolments. And there's clearly a need for the TAFE system to define a new role for itself. Craig Robertson, Chief Executive Officer of TAFE Directors Australia, was clear that TAFEs could be separated from other VET providers and be given more autonomy operating in the space between private training providers and higher education providers. Now, in terms of uh, self-accreditation powers or the adaptability, um, I can't see why TAFEs can't be given that flexibility to be able to do that, to be given some ground rules. Um, Because let me tell you, they have connections with industry just as much as um, the elaborate industry arrangements have um, nationally. And they'll be able to connect at the local level about what those uh, requirements are. So to a certain extent, they will meet local requirements, they'll be better at meeting local requirements through uh, what they deliver. There needs to be an associated piece of change in that area, particularly if we're talking about self-accreditation of diploma or advanced diploma. Um, the amount of student loans available for, through VET student loans is just not enough um, really to warrant um, high value um, for diplomas and advanced diplomas. So there'd need to be some loosening up of the loan limits that are available against that at the moment. Despite the divide within tertiary education, some themes clearly span it. In particular, international students and industry engagement. On international education, I had a great chat with Stephanie Fay, the Chief Executive Officer of Austrade the government agency responsible, amongst other things, for international education as a form of export. And what was striking was the sheer scale of international education in this country now and its continuing growth. As you say, international education is a very important export sector for Australia. Uh, it generates currently about $35 billion. Uh, and it also employs about 240,000 people. Uh, And one in 50 people in Australia is actually an international student. Really? So it's a very significant sector. Uh, So we in government and within the university sector, vet sector, schools, watch uh, the opportunities in international education quite closely Uh, we look at past performance. So if we look at last year's performance, uh, we grew by 17.3%. So there have have been a number of question marks and anxieties around international Mm -hmm. students, 
but the numbers are still growing and in double digits. And I had to ask Stephanie Fay the question on many people's lips, are we too reliant on international students, and in particular on students from a small number of countries? You're right, I think we do have a reliance uh, on a few markets. And in Austrade, we talk about the four C's of diversity. Mm -hmm. And then we talk about the 70% club. Right. So the four C's are the diversity which which is required in the countries from which Mm -hmm. students come, uh, the cities to which they go, uh, and the courses which they do, and also the channels through which they come. So we need to diversify all of those. And if I can give you some examples, so in terms of countries, and this is where the 70% club comes in, uh, 70.9% of our international higher education enrolments actually come from five countries. So from China, India, Nepal, Vietnam and Malaysia. And then in terms of the cities, they go, 78% go to just three cities, Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. And in terms of courses, almost 70% are concentrated in three courses, management and commerce, IT, engineering, and when we think about the channels through which they come to Australia, 74% actually come through agents. Goodness. So you're seeking to diversify across each of the four Cs, partly to reduce risk, but also just to add to the acceptability and interest of, of it all. Is that, is That's that... exactly right. Okay. Uh, we do have to manage risk. Okay. Uh, any business uh, would know that a reliance on just a couple of markets or a couple of products uh, doesn't give you sustainability. Uh, And given that we're living in quite turbulent uh, geopolitical Mm -hmm. times, it makes sense for Australia to diversify and also to disperse where the students go when they arrive in Australia. And I asked Stephanie Fay whether she was an optimist for Australia's future in international education. And I know I shouldn't ask a question like that because no one's going to say they're a pessimist. But her answer was nevertheless persuasive. I'm optimistic, uh, but I think we need to be very sensitive to headwinds. Uh, We know in our past and not so recent past, if there's a change in visa setting Mm -hmm. or if there's uh, problems around safety or if there are geopolitical tensions, it can impact uh, our international education sector. So we need to be very cognizant of those factors as well as the social licence in Australia to support international education. And you did ask me before about what the benefits are for Australia Mm -hmm. Uh, and bringing revenue to Australia is a clear benefit, but international education is far more than that. Uh, And we go to Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and the cultural life that is brought to those cities, especially the inner city, is exciting, 
Uh, the food is diverse. You can buy food at any time of the day. Entertainment, music, fashion. These international students bring vibrancy to the city uh, that wouldn't be there unless they, unless they were there. As for industry engagement, another issue that spans tertiary education, it's obviously a mixed report card. Jenny Lambert from Aki again. I certainly think that some of the providers are trying their best to work with industry. The vocational training system has a good, if you like, experience or history of working with industry fairly closely. The university is less slow, and we see that in a lot of evidence about the extent to which industry and universities collaborate. Certainly for vocational training, there is that history of collaboration and responsiveness. Private higher education, however, stands or falls on the strength of its industry links. This is Linda Brown, Chief Executive Officer of Laureate Australia and President of Torrens University. Yeah, I think um, for us, we've certainly built ourselves as industries university. Uh So we do not develop any curriculum without having a minimum of 12 employers sitting around the table, really talking about the future of work. Because the only KPI that I've got as the CEO of Australia and New Zealand is to ensure that more than 90% of my students are employed in their field of study with a higher graduate salary than others. So based on that, we have four promises that we deliver to our students. And these aren't a choice. One of the first Frustrating things for me when I was in not just um, Swinburne but also in Queensland government is a lot of our education is based on choice. So the students who are smart will tend to find their way to work integrated learning or they'll tend to find their way to internships. When we created this new university, we wanted to make sure that everybody went to work. So therefore, it wasn't a choice. Work integrated learning was built into the curriculum. That right. was credit loaded. It was paid and it allowed people to earn and learn at the same time. That's one of our key differentiators. One of the paradoxes of the university system in Australia is that when some people look at it, they regard it as all the same, homogeneous, but other people only see diversity and difference. It's a bit like one of those optical illusions that goes viral, such as the dress, which some see as black and blue, and others see as white and gold. Glyn Davis, former Vice-Chancellor at the University of Melbourne and Griffith University, champions the sameness argument, and in fact developed it in a monograph called The Australian Idea of a University. This is how I put the point to him. Well, a central theme of your monograph on the idea of the Australian University, to me, was that Australia's public universities are insufficiently differentiated and that that is not a good thing. Not everyone, I think, agrees with you and some do see major differences between universities. I guess it might depend on how far back one is standing from the detail. But in global and maybe historical terms, do you think our sector is homogeneous or heterogeneous? So a piece of evidence I used in the book was the Carnegie classification. The Carnegie classification, which is developed for America, which is important to say, has about seven fundamentally different types of universities and about 35 options. And what was striking is when you apply that classification to Australia, every single Australian public university ends up in the same narrow band. We are all doctoral institutions that aspire to be comprehensive 
and are research-based. So in that sense, we are, according to the international classification, deeply homogeneous. We are as about as uniform as it's possible to be. That said, Carnegie, interestingly, have currently funding a trial to see whether they can go to a more nuanced international classification. And perhaps that will show up some differences, because we clearly have some. The dual sectors, for example, the combination of TAFE and university are almost unique in the world. They're, they're very important institutions, and we only have a handful of them, but they do actually show a quite a different model and what's possible. But what we don't have much difference on is scale. Thinking about a, a US system or even a British system where institutions can be less than 10,000 students up to the sort of large institutions we're used to, but in Australia, everything's large. Even the smallest institutions <laughs> are large by world standards, and our largest institutions are as big as any on the planet. Yeah. And it's a bit surprising to think, why would you need universities of 80,000 students in this country? And the answer is, because we have relatively few universities compared to population. Think about how many there are in Britain, 114, 120, something like that, a population roughly twice our size. Here we've got 41 institutions serving 26 million people. Two vice-chancellors recently appointed to their universities emphasised how distinctive their institutions were from the others. Carolyn Evans of Griffith University seeks to recapture some of that university's founding progressive mission. One of the things that I really think is important at leadership in a university is to take advantage of the incredible range of brilliant people who happen to work in the same university as you. So we're having, I hope, a very genuine, open and engaged discussion about what our strategy should be. The broad parameters of that are beginning to emerge, but we'll be locking them down over the next few months. So yeah, watch this space. One of the things that people are really keen to think about is how we perhaps get back in touch with some of Griffith's interdisciplinary roots. Uh, as some people will know, Griffith was established in a way that was really quite leading for the time and, and a little controversial around just four large academic groupings, one of which was environmental studies, one of which was Asian studies. You know, these things in the 70s were not the way that universities were run. Uh, so we have a long tradition of interdisciplinary teaching and research, uh, and that still goes on today, absolutely. But people would like to be a bit more ambitious in that area, and I certainly join with that ambition. Rufus Black of the University of Tasmania has a strong commitment to the idea of a place-based university and of his university exemplifying it. When we in Tasmania talk about being a place-based university, um, we're very focused on our place in Tasmania. Uh, and as, you know, as the single kind of higher education provider resident on the island, um, this is a state uh, that has great needs for both skills and knowledge um, to help shape its future. So our mission is shaped by the, uh, the tasks that Tasmania requires um, to see a prosperous future, overcoming the kind of quite a wide range of challenges the state faces. But to be place-based is not just about the, the mission, but how you go about it. It is actually to enable the place itself to define the character of how we, of how we do that. And Tasmania is a unique and wonderful place in a, great, in a great many ways. 
Um, and so as we go about it, we do want to actually be ensuring that's informed by the distinct attributes and qualities that characterize it. Indeed, it's more than a single place. It's really a place of places. Um, and we are fortunate to be located in three of its key, in three of its key regions here in the south in Hobart and Launceston, um, on the cradle, on the cradle coast, uh, in Burnie, each with its own distinctive communities, its distinctive qualities, and of course, distinctive challenges, um, and opportunities. So they give us a chance to define, um, not just what we do, but how we do it. The final piece of place-based is also we have a unique location in the world. Um, we sit, you know, far south um, on the cusp of, on the very edge of the Great Southern Ocean, uh, Australia's jumping off point uh, to the Antarctica, you know, on a remarkable piece of natural heritage, um, huge amount of it uh, in world in world heritage and world heritage care. And so that enables us to do things from Tasmania that are that you can only distinctively do from here. So those qualities of place, whether it's about what we're doing here, about what we're doing from here, take center stage in defining both our priorities and how we're going about how we're going about pursuing them. At the other end of her vice chancellor tenure, Jane Den Hollander, finishing at Deakin University after nine years in office, emphasized how Deakin had moved ahead in digital technology. To date, we've tended to think about digital learning as people staring at a screen, but obviously headsets are coming along, hologram technology is being developed, AI and smart bots are on the scene. How do you see digital delivery or learning through digital means developing? I think all of those things will prevail. What you won't have is a book on a screen. The terrible days was just whack it into a PDF, throw it in the cloud and Bob's your uncle. It doesn't work like that. And certainly at Deakin, we have spent a veritable fortune on trying to improve our cloud experience. The cloud campus is an online for the vernacular, but we call that campus the cloud. Why do we call it the cloud? to differentiate that people were learning through a screen from Deakin. And other than that, there should be no differences between whether you're face-to-face or on a screen, except that in the cloud often you're there because you can't make class. So it's asynchronous. So how do we build in asynchronicity? And so we use a lot of AI, a lot of artificial intelligence in our large classes most particularly, constant, constant upgrade of the quality of the information and the quality of the assignment and the assessment. Because, of course, as you and I know, it's no longer about content. It's about skill development for a future job that we don't know what that job is, except that we know probably it will use the innate human skills, which most machines for the next 20 years still don't have. So it's a complicated business. It's not a cheaper business. You know, to your listeners, digital is not cheaper than face-to-face. Cheapest thing is get a thousand-seater classroom, whack someone in the front who's charismatic and give them a lecture. That teaches none of those people anything at all. And it's an expensive proposition to go to university. So digital is slightly more expensive while you start. There's probably a benefit from scale. Keeping it contemporary, keeping it relevant means you're always upgrading. But it could be in the long run, 
if you mix it with some face-to-face where people co-locate and do things, a much better outcome. And We're not quite there yet. And you use a virtual assistant, Deacon Genie? We do. So Deacon Genie is a mobile, it sits on your phone. We haven't quite got to exams on your phone, but our student mm-hmm. population definitely expects that eventually they will do their exams on their phone because why can't we? And it's an interesting question. Why aren't all of their exams in some kind of mobile environment where it doesn't matter how much access to data they have? they still have to think about how they're going to respond to whatever the assessment or assignment or whatever it is that is being used to validate skills might mean. So Deacon Genie is a perfect example of our use of student data. So we know things about our students because they've volunteered into the system. We know if they haven't used the learning management system. We know that they haven't accessed the references for the assignment. We know whether they've handed in the assignment And we can intervene with that and say, by the way, Jane, you know, you've only got another three days on that assignment and I see you haven't touched the references. It's interesting. You or I might say, oh, switch off our phone. There's another generation say, oh, yeah, I'll do that tonight. And so we see that as helpful. Then, of course, the next level, when you're going into retaining students to success, one of the things that the genie can do is if you got below a pass, you and I know that passing your first assignment is the best indicator of getting a degree, bizarrely. If you pass the first one, you have hope. You don't get humiliated or lose your confidence. So making sure that people do get that first assignment or assessment task, whatever it is, and that secondly, if they don't do well, is to intervene as fast as you can to ensure that that person is either helped with whatever skill they're missing. And now the data can tell you whether it's a numerical or a literary skill or whatever it is and intervene. I think that that side of our business is now going to go to the top of everything we do so that we know more about you and your learning behaviour, not for anything creepy, but to help you get success and get through faster so you get to whatever it is that you want to do next. Peter Dawkins, Vice-Chancellor at Victoria University, emphasised their innovative block teaching model. I knew about it beforehand and asked him what it is and in what sense is it innovative? Well, we introduced it, first of all, in our first-year teaching because we thought that the first-year students weren't doing as well as they should be doing, that there was too high an attrition rate, that there were too high failure rates. And we were very determined that we could support our first-year students to complete their studies and be successful to a greater extent than they were. So we scoured the world for the best way to provide a supportive, interactive form of teaching with our students who, in the traditional model, we felt were sort of getting lost a bit, turning up to big lectures, a strange environment, especially for students at Victoria University, which are from very diverse backgrounds, students from from low socioeconomic backgrounds, students from migrant backgrounds, students that perhaps don't have the same supports at home that many other students do across the system. And we discovered this thing called block teaching, which occurs in a number of small universities in North America and is quite prevalent in Scandinavia. And under this method, students do one subject at a time and they typically do it in small groups, not in large lecture environments. So what we've done, and we're now extending it across the whole university, started off in first year, but it's worked so well there that we're now doing it in second year, then third year, then postgraduate. We're also going to do it across our vocational education and training, is that each student does one subject at a time. In undergraduate studies, that 
is a four-week block. I just taught one myself, an economics block, and the students meet with the staff member for three three-hour teaching sessions in a week for four weeks, enables them to complete a full subject that normally takes a whole semester because it's intensive study when they're only studying that subject and they're doing it in these small groups. So we've abolished lectures. Uh There's a lot of digital learning materials that they can use on the learning management system. Ideally, they do reading before they come to class. Then we go through topics with them, but mainly in a problem-solving way, interactively, group discussions rather than the traditional lecture. And so that's the model, and it's having a fantastic impact on the students. Most of the voices you've heard in this wrap-up episode have been from those inside the Australian tertiary education sector, but I tried to bring in other voices. First, from overseas, Professor Martin Dole of University College London, one of the few professor researchers in the world whose field is actually vocational education. And one of his interests is the role of market forces in tertiary education as distinct from government planning. So if you take it as um, having two pure alternatives, a completely planned system or a completely free market in training, presumably neither um, is going to work satisfactorily. And in theory, there's a happy medium, but do you know where that happy medium is? Uh, I don't know where the happy medium is, but I do know there are a couple of indicators, I think, to find your way through this. And one of the indicators is actually the type of economy that a skills and education system responds to. Uh, If you're in a continental system um, with a greater degree of corporatism, a longer view on return on capital, Mm. and a greater acceptance of more authoritarian, if you'd like to put it that way, direction for young people and the courses they might follow through the rest of their life, then there's more room to have a planned, Mm. organised system. Mm. If you have a free market or Atlanticist type economy, which is free flowing with a shorter review kind of uh, reflection on the the value of capital and the investment in capital and return on investment, much shorter timescales and a much greater degree of labour market flexibility, the skill system needs to reflect that. So I find it very hard to see in an economy like the UK's or, or Australia's in a modern context you can have a planned system mm-hmm. which plans in detail mm-hmm. and affords the institutions no autonomy whatever that said though if you want to promote greater social equity greater evenness between places in those economies which is one of the great themes being considered i think not just in, in uh, academia but also in policy makers in the uk save all the attentions going on brexit then that's how you combine social equity, evenness, more even place-based prosperity, and a free market approach with autonomous institutions. So it's how you construct that framework for action. And another non-sector voice was Jan Owen, Chief Executive Officer of the Foundation for Young Australians. Her starting points are what young people want, what they will need in a fast-changing world of work, and how they can make informed choices. The tricky challenge exists in all of this to decide how much knowledge content should go into education and how much generic and transferable skills. 
So the balancing act of enough content, domain knowledge, if you like, with the ability to do things with that knowledge, that strikes me as being the really hard thing. I think you're 100% right. I think we've had a content-led curriculum, particularly in high school, for a very long time. And I think at university we've had these two paths. One is about skills and knowledge, which would take you to university, and the other was training, which would take you to vocational education. That is clearly, patently, obviously wrong. So what we hear employers asking for, wherever people come from, is we need people who can do things with what they have learned. Absolutely. And so this is where we now, and, you know, one of the number or number two in our New Work Reality Report, really strong recommendation was this work-integrated learning. Whether at school, and it is best if it starts at school, where you're doing immersive hands-on learning, but it must follow through to this future tertiary education system, wherever it happens, must blend these two 20th century models, because that's what they are, where you took a path, it must blend them and say, actually, of course, we need knowledge and skills. And yes, we need training, but these must come together in work integrated learning. So there you have it. I can tell you it's a lot easier inviting interesting people in and just asking them questions than it is to go back over all the audio and pick out central themes across the episodes. But that's my retrospective on it all. Next season, we're going to look at disruption and who is trying to engineer it. I put the whole issue to Glyn Davis, as I had done on an earlier occasion at his former university. Stephen, as you know, and as you reflected on in that time you spoke with the team at Melbourne, there's always people predicting that disruption is just around the corner. You've been able to buy books now for about 20 years that explain that the large public university is doomed, and yet they're all still there and broadly flourishing. So the much predicted disruption has not happened. And the first wave of disruptors failed to do what they said they were going to do, which was disrupt the public university. But I think it would be foolish to imagine, therefore, there's no threat and therefore that time has moved on. On the contrary, it's just going to take a while for the entrepreneurs who are looking for ways in to find the right way in. The first attempts didn't work as well as expected, so that the much-touted Udacity and other organisations in the end turned out to be more limited offerings than expected. But in time, they'll find ways and they'll segment the market. And I guess the risk for public universities is the one we just touched on, But if disruptors find ways of attracting those fee-paying students on whom public universities rely, then just by taking those students away, they don't have to take all of them, just taking those students away will cause major funding and other problems for the public sector. So you can see the way disruption might be more nuanced and yet quite devastating in its consequences. It's often said about major transformations that they always start slower than you expect and the results are always more comprehensive and just it takes longer than anyone anticipated and one suspects we're in one of those moments. But one of the things we learned, I think, from the failure of that first tranche of Silicon Valley disruptors is the enduring power of university, which they misread, because they saw it as essentially an educational offering. And it's so much more. It's about finding out who you are. It's about time with peers and colleagues. It's about identity. It has so many other layers that weren't easy to capture in a degree offered online from an anonymous warehouse somewhere in Silicon Valley. 
But having learned that lesson, you can see the next tranche of innovation, Minerva, for example, are trying to create the sense of cohort and the sense of belonging that comes with a university degree. So you can see that shift. And they've announced that they think their method can now deliver a kind of Socratic small group feel to cohorts of 400 students at 5,000 US dollars a year. That would really be a disruptor if it's true. And interestingly, their target market is Ivy League. The target market is, you might think, those least likely to be interested in price and least likely to be disrupted, but hey. I'm not sure Glyn will thank me for giving him but hey as his last words on the subject, but hey. Thank you for listening to Talking Tertiary to Date. Thanks to my guests who didn't know what they were in for, but then nor did I really. If you have a topic related to the future of tertiary education that you feel needs further discussion, then do get in touch either on email, talkingtertiary at kpmg.com.au, on Twitter, I'm at Stephen Parker ED, or leave a review on iTunes. I hope you listen to the full episodes rather than my weird extracts, and I look forward to being with you again in 2020 on Talking Tertiary.